the title this week is, it is two-part series, okay? So, um, but it is a different title than last week. The title of this week is The Altar of Calling and Promise. And uh, last week was, um, I'm blanking. It was heirs and uh, through, Christ, through righteousness and faith, right? So I'll get in more about why it's the altar of calling and promise, um, but it's a pretty straightforward title. And uh, I think it's very important. This message I've been thinking about a lot. It was actually when I was asked to do two sermons, a uh, two-part series. This was the one that I was already planning on doing last week. Um, so I've been really reflecting on it. And, and one of the, a lot of things have gone into the reflection of it. Um, one is our discipleship group has been reading a book called The Great Omission, um, I just finished reading a book called Heinz Feet on High Places, and that's a lot of got a lot of my wheels turning. It's one of my wife's favorite books, and so I read it, and uh, I must agree, it's like a really good book. Um, there's something about allegory that really helps us to understand concepts. Um, but another thing is just the idea of Pentecost and and a lot of what our church has been going through with a longing for more encounters with the Holy Spirit and for growth and, and all these things that the Lord has put on our hearts. And, and that's kind of what this uh, message has been born out of is a lot of these different things. So before we get going, let's open with prayer. Lord, you are the author and perfecter of our faith. Our hearts are evil and wicked. Um, our minds are finite. And we have no hope of coming to you except through your son Christ and the sacrifice of him on a cross. We have no hope of understanding you or knowing you except through your Holy Spirit changing our minds and our hearts. So I pray that that would happen today, that our hearts and minds would be changed and molded by your spirit as we encounter you through your word and through through praise and worship even through communion and as we uh, give our tithes and our offerings god that all of these would be acts of of worship that lead us to knowing you better so break our hearts this morning lord and give us ears to hear um, i pray that the words that i speak today would not be my own but would be breathed out from your scripture by your Holy Spirit, and that people would hear them. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're going to get to the outline here. Um, first, we're going to talk about calling and promise. I know we talked a little bit about that last week, uh, so if you are wanting more background of this sermon, it would be helpful to go listen to last week's sermon at some point. Um, but you should still get something out of this without that. So the calling and promise, we're going to go over that. We're going to talk about what is the calling and promise, um, what that, how that's different than our ancestors, or more specifically how that's been the same. Um, because it's a big key. It's, as Christians, we're called to something, and we're promised something. And if we weren't called to something and promised something, then there's really no point. So that's what God has in store for us. That's why he created us. 
It's a big deal. We're also going to talk about laying things at the altar. We talked about last week about how Abraham was a priest. And one of the things he did often was build altars to the Lord. And uh, we talked about the, the thing that he was laying last week, the thing we were talking about, what he was laying down at the altar or what, what he had to get past was his performance-based thinking, thinking that he had to take in God's ways into his own hands. He's like, I know God has given me this promise that he would make me into a great nation. I know he's called me out of, out of the land of my fathers. And, and when he, he forgot that it was God who brought that about, he, he fell into sin. And it frustrated him. He often, every single time he took things into his own hands, he failed. And we talked last week about how that's a lot of Christians' experiences is where we, we get burnt out or we come to church for decades and never grow. We never grow up. We never learn anything new about the Lord or his ways. And, and we feel like we're dealing with the same sin over and over again. Uh, it's because we're trying to do it under our own power, oftentimes. And that's performance-based thinking, and that's super easy for us to fall into. And in fact, if you look at every other religion in the world, that is the basis that they're built off of, is performance. Most religions get it right. There is a chasm. There is a, a gap between us and God. We are sinful. Everyone, most religions get that, Right? They get that there's a separation between God and man, and what they think is that it's our job to bridge that gap. But the faith that Abraham had was that he would send a Messiah, Christ, to bridge that gap for us. Right. So if you're not thinking about that regularly, you need to be preaching that gospel to yourself every day, or you're going to fall into this performance-based thinking as well. Because, you know, there, faith is dead without good works, right? But it's the faith that good works are, are born out of, right? It's the good works don't lead to more faith. It's God's faith that he puts in us that leads to good works. They're a consequence of our faith in God, right? They're not the chief end. They are the consequence. They're, they're a wonderful gift from God. Our good works are a gift from God. Okay, And if they don't feel like that, if you feel burnt out or you feel like uh, there's really no point in it, you're probably thinking performance-based. And that's going to, going to leave you struggling. You're going to fail every single time. I promise you that. Because I've done it a lot. <laughs> you know, that, that's, uh, I grew up in the church since my, you know, I've been in the church my whole life. I was baptized at five, truly believed the Lord. And and so I've got a long track record, even though I'm only 23, right? Um, that means I've been 23 years in the Lord, okay? And I know what performance-based thinking leads to. A lot of despair, <laughs> a lot of frustration. It's something I still struggle with, especially the days that I don't preach the gospel to myself. So we're also going to talk about the expectations of, of God's ways that we have and why we need to lay those down at the altar, that's the more specifically, like, that's more specifically what we're going to be talking about today. You know, we have the people over here that are, you know, Christians who are frustrated, burn out from ministry or have been in church their whole lives and haven't grown at all. And then we're going to have people that are doing 
you know, they trust God to fulfill his promises, but then they have wrong expectations of what those promises look like. And so when those expectations aren't met, they lose faith. When it's not done their way, the way that they expect God to work, they lose faith. And I've been in that camp too, uh, more recently too. Like that's, that's something I think that our, our congregations really struggled with is that camp where we are expecting to God to work one way and he hasn't worked that way and we, we get frustrated and lose faith. That's not good either. So, and then we're going to talk about Abraham and his interaction with this uh, wrong expectations or rightful expectations of God's ways. We're going to talk about Peter and how he had wrong expectations of Christ and God's ways and what happened after those were changed, after his expectations became God's expectations. And then we'll, we'll consider our altar what we need to lay down. What are our wrong expectations? So if we turn to calling and promise slide. So first off, we're all given a calling and a promise at the beginning. We talked about that last week, right? That That's the purpose of being a Christian. Like God created us with purpose, right? To glorify God. Um, and I think it's very important to understand that with both of these camps, you know, the performance-based thinking and the expectation, wrong expectations of God's ways, uh, those would be ratified if we thought about these as coming from God, being to God, so our calling is to him, our promises are to him, the glory goes to him, and that it's accomplished by God, that it's him that fulfills our calling, it's him that, that um, brings glory to his own name. You know, if it was up to us, God would never be glorified, <laughs> right? We, we are terrible worshipers, okay? We're very faithless worshipers. So I, this calling that I, I want to bring out real quick is very important because it's the, the big picture calling that we're all called to. Um, is, it's a very prominent theme in Scripture that we can all, if you look closely at, at everyone the promises they get from the Lord, it's, it's the same promise. So Adam in Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then you see Abraham in Genesis 12.1-2 that we saw last week. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Then Peter, in Matthew sixteen eighteen, 18, uh, it says, And I, I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock will build, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then what's our promise that, that we've received? It's the Great Commission uh, in Matthew 28, 18, 18 through 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what I want to draw out of here is like, at first glance, those things don't seem to have anything in connection. They seem like they use a lot of different terms, you know, your father's house, kindred, disciples, uh, the church, things like that. They're all talking about one thing, and it's God's kingdom and how it spreads. And that's what we're called to as Christians is to advance God's kingdom. Ever since Adam, that's what we've been called to. And that, that becomes more clear as time goes on. What does it mean to be a great nation? Right? Or, or what does it mean to have dominion over the whole earth, right? It's a great nation. What's a great nation? It's the church. What's the church? It's disciples, people who observe God's commandments, right? We're seeing more clearly what we're actually called to, and that's, you know, if I had a, a whole sermon, I could talk about just this one point because this is huge, you know? This is something you could spend your whole life, like, what does it mean uh, to be the church? And I think a lot of these, you know, we get this calling. We understand that, a lot of us, and so we want these good things that the Lord's promised us, and we think about his way of accomplishing that differently than he does oftentimes, right? We usually water down God's, God's ways and his expectations. You know, some people say we put him in a box, right? We try and put an infinite, omnipresent God in a box, our box that we constructed. We can't even make good clothing, you know? If you look at Adam and Eve, they couldn't even make good clothing, right? So how are they going to make a good box, right? <laughs> so next we're going to talk about laying things at the altar. And uh, I talked a little bit long about this in the, the outline, so I'll kind of breeze through it. Um, but the performance-based thinking, it's when we know God's calling and promise but seek to fulfill it by our own strength. I think very clearly we can see that, that this is foolish, in Psalm 127, because in Psalm 127, 1, we see, uh, I love this verse, first of all, because it's, it's the first one that we considered when we were coming into this church building. It was the mantra that whole summer that we were, were working to, to make this place presentable, uh, even if it does have not beautiful carpet, Right? We did a lot of other things that made this place beautiful, but, but we were in the back of our heads always thinking, Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So we can build the house, we can try and build the church, right? We can try and be vigilant of the enemy and of sin crouching at our door and stuff, but if it's not the Lord who's actually doing it, it's all in vain. I don't care how good of a Christian you think you are, if it's not coming from the Lord, it's in vain. There's really no point in your good works if it's not from the Lord, right? 
Paul spoke of his good works and accolades as, as scubalon, as filth, as dung, right? And lo- except for the things that came from the Lord, okay? So that's all, all our good works are is if we're coming in here and making this, this church building look good, um, it's just a church building if, if the Lord's not in it, if he's not the one building it. So we got to lay that down at the altar. And I, again, I said that those are the people that oftentimes are in church for years and years and years and not growing. Or they're the people that are doing ministry for years and years and years and are being burnt out and frustrated by their own efforts. Their ceaseless strivings that bring no fruit. And that is frustrating, right? The fruit comes from the Lord, so we need to seek him in that. But today, more specifically, what I I really want to get across is these expectations of God's ways that we need to lay at the cross. So this is when we trust God to fulfill his calling and promise. We know that he'll do it. But we're discouraged when, when he does it in a way we aren't expecting. And I think when we get into looking at Peter, we'll really see this. It'll be very clear what I mean. So what are, what are his ways, like what are some of the ways that, that he can operate um, that can be different than ways we expect? So like one thing is like his timing. A lot of times we're like, you know, we're expecting God to operate within a certain time frame and uh, things don't happen as quickly or as slowly as we hope, right? It's like, oh, I wasn't, expe- like, I wasn't ready to step into ministry yet, Lord. <laughs> or... Uh, Lord, I really want to, like, overcome this sin now, (laughs) right? But the Lord's like, "Mm, you're not quite broken enough over it, right? You need to wait a little bit longer. So his timing is something that we often get wrong. His delivery systems, oftentimes we're looking for, maybe we're looking for a miracle to heal us, but really it's God's word that needs to heal us, right? We expect his, his uh, provision to come through one way and miss it when it comes through another way. You know, we're asking God for his supernatural ability to be more calm, but then when we're stuck in traffic and he's putting us in stressful situations, uh, he's giving us an opportunity to remember his word and, and to be more calm. He's using life. He's using church members to rebuke us for our, our bad character sometimes and and. Like, I think Stephen talked about this Wednesday night. He's like, I love, I love reading the word and getting convicted by the word, but when one of my housemates comes to me and convicts me, it really grinds my gears, right? Why, why do we hear scripture so easily and, and rebuke ourselves so easily, but when so, God uses someone else to rebuke us, we don't listen, right? Like, that's, that's it's... It's a big deal. It, we miss the ways that God's works oftentimes because we're looking for it in our, how we expect it to come. Sometimes we miss who he's using. You know, sometimes, like, we may expect a pastor to tell us something, right? But then he uses a child to bring us information, insight into our situation, and we miss it because we look down upon children. Right? Or they're not 
or we'll look to our family for insight and not to the church family that's around us here in our situation who knows what we're going through. We miss these things. We put our desires for God's ways above God himself. Right? We make these expectations of God's workings as an idol above God himself. So a simple verse to combat that, right? Um, Matthew 6, clearly says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Okay? So it will happen in God's timing and his ways, how he wants to do it. Right? So if we're looking at Abraham's altar and uh, his story, we see a lot of his failings early on and, and his lack of trust in the Lord, his unbelief, so to speak, his performance-based thinking um, when he fails. But then when he, he's trusting the Lord and not trying to perform for God, he's doing really good as a, as a priest. He's acting very wisely with Lot and listening to God and going where God wants him to go. Um, again, that was a lot of what we talked about last week. But if we're following his story, you know, he gets this calling and stuff, and he fails time and time again. He expects, uh, oftentimes his wrong expectation of God is that, like, he didn't even expect God to give him a son in his old age, right? He expected God to use one of his living sons. Or, or how about the time where he's like, Lord, you gave me this great promise, but all I have right now is a servant. Are you going to make a great nation out of him? I've never heard of you giving a son to someone. <laughs> like, he, that didn't even cross his mind. He's like, wait, maybe the son's not born yet that you're going to build a great nation out of. Or maybe it's the son that I had with, with not my wife. <laughs> you know, is that the son you mean? The one that was born out of my own sin and striving? Is that the one? He's like, no, I got another one for you. And he's like, my wife's pretty old. I don't know. I don't think you can, I don't think you work that way, God. I don't think you open and close wombs, God. I'm going to put you in this box over here and, and do it the way that it's always been done, right? But we see by the time that he gets to Genesis 22, right, which I purposely didn't speak to a lot last week. Um, because I think this really encapsulates the change in Abraham's heart through the working of God in time, is we get to Genesis 22, and we see him take Isaac up to lay him on an altar because the Lord asked him to. And a lot of us would say, we don't know what Abraham was thinking, but guess what? Scripture tells us what he was thinking, right? So if you go to Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, The writer of Hebrews says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, because it is a testing, every time we have to lay down our expectation and pick up God's expectations, it's testing, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now he knows this is the son that the Lord's going to bring the nation through. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He, why would he have a concept of someone being raised from the dead? You talk about creative thinking. I guarantee Abraham hadn't seen this before. Why would it cross his mind that God would raise him from the dead unless he just trusted the Lord so much that the impossible is possible? Like he was so ready to lay down his own expectations because of God's word, because God said it would happen. He heard God say, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he said, Lord, if... If you need to raise him from the dead, you can do that. You'll do it. You made the promise. You'll fulfill the calling. And you'll bring glory to your name. Right? And this is, this is something I really love because the story of Abraham doesn't end there, right? In, ch- in chapter 22. Um, you see later on this, this beautiful chapter of, of this, the gospel story unfold where Abraham sends his servant to go retrieve a bride for his son Isaac that is such a a first fruit or a proof of God's commitment to Abraham now Isaac had a wife someone to have a kid with He says, it doesn't stop at Isaac. He said, you were faithful, and now he has a wife. And he will have children. And you'll see his kids. You'll see this nation begin to be built. Because you trusted me, you'll see the fruit of that. You'll see what I can do as God is is what that was, right? So after Abraham laid down his expectations of how God would use Isaac or how he would build a great nation, God was faithful to show him a promise being fulfilled. He didn't wait. You know, Abraham didn't have to wait until Christ's second coming to see that God was building his church. He, didn't even, he did it even before Christ died on the cross before Christ came the first time. He trusted the Lord. He had faith. So who I think bears this out really good is Peter because we're not just seeing a good example of trusting the Lord. We're, we get to see Peter, who's a bad example of, of having wrong expectations of God, right? Or a good example of wrong expectations, a bad example of good expectations, however you want to look at it. Don't be like Peter is what I'm saying. <laughs> at least at first. So if you'd turn with me to Matthew 16, we're going to read a, a larger chunk. I, 
I was blown away when I was reading this uh, recently. This whole thing had been on my heart already, and I knew these these two sections of Scripture separately because guess what? There's like a little section heading in my Bible, and I would always separate them in my mind. And then, and then I was reading them recently. I think Stephen actually mentioned these verses Wednesday, and uh, I finally made the connection. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I was what God was laying on my heart. So, Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, who seems to always be the first one to speak up, huh? He's very confident in himself. Replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It seems like the right answer, and it is. Because Christ affirms it. He says, and it says, And Jesus answered, And blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he gets the promise. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And then we, if you're not reading your Bible in big chunks, you'd probably stop there. And then the new section would say, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. So it's important to know that these are back-to-back. Okay, very important to read these back-to-back. And and notice Peter's heart and how quickly he seems to change his viewpoint. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, again the first to speak up, took him aside and began to rebuke him. That is such our hearts. How often have we tried to rebuke God? (laughs) No, it doesn't. It does not work very good. (laughs) That's that's so ridiculous. I get it if someone tried to rebuke me. (laughs) I definitely listen or reflect on why they're rebuking me, even if they're wrong. (laughs) Most of the time, they're right. But to rebuke God? And Peter knew he was God. He just said he was God. Right? And he rebuked him. And he said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
and I think an appropriate response from Jesus. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And when we have wrong expectations, we are setting our minds on the things of man and not God. And we are being a hindrance to God. You want to be faithfully used by, by God? Get out of his way. Stop trying to rebuke him and tell him how things ought to be done. Telling him he should be anything else than a self-sacrificing servant. You know, oftentimes I think we read this and, and we look at Christ and say, you can't be a servant because that means if we're supposed to follow you that we need to be servants. We need to sacrifice, and I don't want that. So, Lord, like, you just said we had the keys to the kingdom of heaven. How could someone who has the keys of the kingdom of heaven be killed or have to die to their self? This scares us. We don't want to do that. We don't want to follow Christ into the gates of hell, giving up our whole lives for him. So he was given the promise, he was told the church would be built upon him, and he expected the Savior Christ to be above servanthood in that, and to be above sacrifice, and that, that the church would be victorious through geopolitical means. He didn't expect a, a church that had a leader who would die, and that knowing that he would be the next in line, the, the guy that the church was built on, knowing that he would die too probably, he didn't want that. All of this, Luke 22, verses 24 through 30 says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was regarded as the greatest. And how often do we do that too? And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you be as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among, I am among you as the one who serves. He's saying it like in plain, not English, it was Greek, right? <laughs> He's saying it very plainly to them, though, right? And hopefully to our ears. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And Peter heard that, and he's like, yeah. Like, I'm ready to sit on a throne of Israel right here, right now. Let's do this, Christ. But he just told him he, he came as one who's to serve. Right? He heard this and thought it was like earthly lordship. And Christ said it was something much deeper than that. 
It was just like the Pharisees and their view of, of the Ten Commandments, all this external, easy things to fulfill. And Christ said, it's much deeper than that. It's much deeper than you expect from me. It goes all the way down to the intentions of the heart. And I guarantee, even if you think you can fulfill the Ten Commandments in action, you cannot follow them in your heart without the Lord's help. And then we, let's talk about Jesus washing their feet. John 13, 6 through 10. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? He's trying to be a good, a good follower of Christ, lifting Christ in honor, right? Sure. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. That's a great promise. He doesn't say, what, are you, what I am doing you do not understand, and you never will. He says, you will after. So there's hope for us, even though we're all Peters in our heart oftentimes. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then you think Simon would get it after that. Because he thinks he's the greatest among them, he says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. <laughs> Even though you said you were just going to wash my feet, do more for me, Lord. <laughs> do more than you said you would do. <laughs> Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. He's talking about Judas, but he, he didn't get it. Right? And there's so many more references in Scripture. I could, I have a bunch listed here, but I'm going to not mention them because we don't have the time. But if you want to, uh, spend a few hours going through the Gospels and looking at every time that Peter thought he got it but didn't understand that Christ was supposed to die. He said, Christ said multiple times that he had to die and how he had to die. And he used scripture to back that up. So each time that, that Peter makes these uh, foolish statements, Christ rebuked him. Remember, he said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. He rebuked him. That's not right thinking. If we're thinking wrong and expecting God to work wrong, you know, or having wrong expectations of how God will be working, we will be rebuked. We will not succeed, and, and it will be obvious. Because through his rebukings, when he says, like, get behind me, Satan, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Or when he says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. He's saying, like, he's setting him up to, to one here truth, which is the most loving thing you can do for someone. And two, he's setting him up to restore him. Christ didn't leave Peter, but first he had to fail. And, and we see that when his expectations of Christ weren't met, um, I think this is at the heart of what I'm trying to get across is like why it's so dangerous. You know, when we put, we have wrong expectations of how God's going to work, we lose faith. And that's clearly seen in Peter because of the way he denies Christ. 
The second Christ is taken, he denies him three times. He says, Lord, I would never deny you, right? And then he gets taken, and he's like, oh, no, our leader, the guy who's supposed to, to establish this kingdom here is taken away and is probably going to get crucified. I don't want to be associated with that. I don't want to be crucified. So he denies the Lord. He loses faith. When our expectations of how God works aren't met, we lose faith. Not only that, he, he lost so much faith that he, after Christ died, this man who the church was to be built on went back to fishing. He's like, this whole church thing's not working out. I guess I'll go back to doing what I'm good at right? This whole ministry thing's not working out. You know, the whole Christian thing's not working out. I guess I'll go back to my old ways. That's what happens when God doesn't work the way we expect him to. If we don't trust him enough to put him before, before our expectations of him, we lose faith. Because we actually, in our minds, created a Christ that's different than the actual Christ. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. But when he was saying that, he was saying something totally different than what, what we really mean by the Son of God, right? He had a different idea of who Christ was. But then Christ rose again and restored him. I love this. If, if you go into and read the account of when Christ restores him, uh, I think it's in Luke or John. John, yeah. At the end, he, he restores him three times. And there's a lovely change of Peter's heart in that. And I'll show you more evidence to his change in heart. But the first evidence is that, like, he's saying, Lord, you know my heart. Or you know that I love you. Lord, you know that I love you. He says that two times. And then on the third time, he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And he finally got it. It clicked. The Lord knows everything. Who am I to rebuke him? And what was, his, what was the fruit that was born out by this change of heart? Well, he goes back to Jerusalem because the Lord tells him to. The epicenter of, of where he would be most frightened to be. Because that was where all of the enemies of, of Christ's followers were. Jerusalem, the epicenter, where, where they were most likely to be persecuted, even on to death. And he's, his faith is so much, it's so built up by God's promises and his restoration that he's, goes back to, he, he goes to Jerusalem and he's staying there, waiting for God's promise, which is the Holy Spirit. And then the promise comes. So in Acts 2, if you guys want to turn there. We see something very similar to what happens after Abraham goes up to lay Isaac on the altar. Acts 2, 1 through 4 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in others' tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. But Peter stand, and then jumping down to verse 14, but Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not, as, not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He's saying, don't be thrown off by something different, some different way that God works that we weren't really expecting. Don't be thrown off of it. Like, don't, don't let it knock you off course. Don't let it make you lose faith because, like, Scripture. And I'll, I'll show you why it was actually this way in Scripture. He's doing what Christ was doing to him for these, these others. And he went on to preach to them. And tell them that the Christ had to die. And that he would raise again. And that the, the Holy Spirit would come upon all peoples. And it says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So I said this was just like Abraham, the father, Abraham, just as God, sent his servant the Holy Spirit, to go retrieve a bride for his son, Christ, and the bride, the church. The second that Peter laid aside his own expectations of God's workings and submitted to God's ways and the ways of God and not the ways of man, 3,000 were added that day. There was first fruits of the church being built. So I just want to leave with this question, like, what are our altars? What are our wrong expectations of, of God? What have we put our faith in above God? What expectations have we trusted more than God? You know, oftentimes we come to the Lord petitioning him for good things. And I do say, like, we petition for good things, trusting him to fulfill his promises you know, we ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We ask for signs and wonders. We ask for better character or for the church to be built up. And we do all this by faith, but we also do it with misplaced expectations. Like, do we realize that when we're asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that means giving up our bitterness that we love so much? Or do we expect to keep it? Do we realize signs and wonders may mean doing things that make the fear of man in us squirm? That if you want to see the Holy Spirit move and, and people be healed, uh, you have to let go of your own idea of who you are. You have to be okay with people thinking you're weird. You have wrong expectations if you think that you can be cool and operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> or that better character may, be, may mean being broken through numerable, innumerable failures. That you need to be crushed if you want to be better, if you want to be fixed. 
So when you go to God and say, Lord, help me be better, what you're asking is, Lord, crush me. Do we think that? Do we have those expectations? Or do we have wrong expectations where we think that like it's going to be easy and painless and without sacrifice? Do we think that we're not going to be servants put on a cross? Or do we realize that for the church to be built, we must die ourselves? Right? Not one of the people that are, are truly committed to building the church of God um, have been able to hold on to their own will and their own wants and desires. How many people have been sent from home to leave their mother and father into strange lands that they've never been for the will of God? So you can't keep, you can't serve two masters. You can't expect to, for your life to remain the same if you want God to change it. That is foolishness. And that's what we do all the time. So, like, I want to just leave with this. You know, we want good things, but are we willing to trade our ways for God's ways? And that's what you really need to ask yourselves. Because it takes sacrifice, and, and that's what Christ did. He sacrificed, and he served for God's ways, not his own. All right, that's all I got.